Hello and welcome to Startup Nation, our weekly podcast that celebrates innovation and entrepreneurship. Startup Nation is brought to you by Dublin Business Innovation Centre, or Dublin BIC as we're more commonly known, where ambitious founders get support to start and scale new businesses. And at Dublin BIC, we work with startups to get them investor ready and also assist them raise the funding to grow their business. So I'm Connor Carmody. I hope you'll stay with me over the next hour as we explore emerging trends in the world of technology and business. Diversity in business, and particularly at a leadership level, is a topic that's been on my mind, uh, and as it relates to the world of startups. What prompted me was reading in the Irish Times during the week that funding for female-founded startups fell to 6%. So they raised female or, or uh, female led companies raised 59 million in the first six months of the year, which was slightly down. On the positive side, the number of companies led by women to receive funding did increase, but their overall share of funding was down significantly. And I wonder why this is. And as I was researching it, it led me to an article in Forbes. It's from about a year ago. There was a couple of points I picked out in it. Private technology companies led by women are more capital efficient and achieving a a 35% higher return on investment. And when venture-backed, 12% higher revenue than startups run by men, and that was according to the Kaufman Foundation. And secondly, women-founded companies in first-round capital, a VC firm, their portfolio outperformed companies founded by men by 63%. And when I think about some of the fantastic role models that have worked with us in Dublin, Bic, you could think of Pharmapod and Leonora O'Brien or Alison Stroh and Dr. Coys in, in different areas, the participants that we've worked with on our Innovate programme. It seems to me there's something not quite right here and I'd like to explore that uh, today. So I'm going to chat with two very strong entrepreneurs that we have worked with in Dublin, Bic, to get their experience and hear their stories. We'll hear from Deirdre Lyons on building a startup, securing HPSU investment. And then we'll hear from Celine D on building a leading brand design agency and the importance of brand for the startup. But first, to kick us off, we're delighted to have Sheila Daly. Sheila is the Entrepreneurship Manager at Enterprise Ireland. Sheila will talk to us about the progress being made and the challenges we still have to overcome with women entrepreneurs. Sheila, good morning and you're very welcome to Startup Nation. Thanks. To start us off, we've been talking about women entrepreneurship uh, in my intro. I was trying to understand the reasons maybe why women entrepreneurs are not being as supported as much as they should historically. And I'm trying to understand that. But maybe to start us off, talk about your particular remit within Enterprise Ireland. Uh, well, Enterprise Ireland, is, as, as uh, your listeners may know, is a national government organisation responsible for supporting the development and growth of Irish companies with a view to exporting. Um, so we, we work across all, all sectors uh, of exporters and, and provide a range of support. In terms of my own particular remit, I'm responsible for, was responsible for de- developing the new women in business strategy and for supporting the growth and development of uh, women, women entrepreneurs and women in enterprise. Um, I also do work with client companies as well. So so that, that, there's, a, there's a, few, um, a few elements of what I do. A few strings to the bow. Can I, can I ask you, um, you have a particular action plan for women entrepreneurship and why is that required? Okay, so we, we launched in February of 2020 our new strategy. It's the six-year strategy for women in business. Um, I suppose, look, if I could talk about this forever, but... I mean, we know that from national statistics that in spite of women being just over 50% of the population, half of all third-level graduates are women, that the number of women who are starting, growing, and leading businesses is continues to be very significantly lower than men. Um, and I suppose what I'd say is that when you try and look at why that is, the reasons really are, are, are very complex um, and, they're, and interconnected. So I suppose what I say is that in many ways, um, those reasons run quite deeply based on on the traditionally masculine enterprise environment and ecosystem, which is is just really a result simply because of the relatively short time that women have had equal opportunities and therefore 
they have not had equal influence on how that ecosystem was constructed and how it operates. So it's a wider societal issue that that has a very specific bearing then on women entrepreneurship. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, the level of change that's required is quite significant. I mean, you know, again, when you look at the, the outcome of that societal impact, it, it's very much in evidence when you look at sectors of employment and that impacts then on entrepreneurship because, you know, you look at sectors of employment that might traditionally have uh, spawned innovation and, and, and new enterprises, construction, engineering, manufacturing, technology. These, these are industries where there is very, very significant disparity in the numbers of women and men. Whereas if you look at health and education, um, women outnumber men by three to one in, in, in the health services and in the education services uh, sectors. Then again, when you look at any industry sectors um, and you look at senior management levels, there's a very significant imbalance. Um, so, you know, all of these factors come together because, you know, people often talk about confidence when it comes to women entrepreneurs. And really, you know, that is about what gives people, whether they're men or women, the inspiration and the belief in themselves and their idea to the extent that they'll take that very significant risk that's needed uh, that you have to take to start up an enterprise. And that is strongly influenced by a number of things, including having senior management experience, having knowledge in an industry sector that tends to spawn innovation and entrepreneurship being other people you can relate to having achieved success and also by having access to, uh, to, to networks, funding providers, suppliers, potential customers, advisors. Um, and in, in all of these areas, as I said, if you look at due to, due to very complex and interconnected reasons, women are at a disadvantage. Very good. So there's a, there's a societal impact as you've you know, explain to us that's leading us to an entrepreneurship impact. Um, and you then in Enterprise Ireland, uh, having observed that, have put in place an action plan, um, which we'll talk about. But what would your hope be uh, arising out of the delivery of this action plan? Yeah, so we have, I mean, and in fairness, I should say that, you know, Enterprise Ireland has, has focused on a very specific area of, of, of women in entrepreneurship for a number of years, which is high potential startups. And I can talk about that in a bit more detail if you wish, but we, we, through some of the actions we've been taking over the last number of years, we have managed to treble the number of female founded high potential startups that we work with. Um, but notwithstanding that, the, the overall, what, what the realization we came to when we were conducting research and developing the new strategy was that if we wanted long-term, sustainable, lasting change, we needed to take a much broader view. So our ambition in our new strategy is, is for Ireland to, to actually benefit from an economic boom as a result of fully enabling and fully utilizing the potential of 100% of our population. Um, you know, across uh, in all of its diversity. That's lovely. So, you know, utilising 100% of our population, why would we, Ireland Inc., hamstring hamstring ourselves by only focusing or supporting a smaller portion of that? That's a lovely way of putting it. You have inside on that a number of very specific objectives um, and they don't just talk to the early stage and we'll come back to the HVCU, but they talk around you know, increasing the number of women in middle and senior management in, in larger Irish companies. There is the startup piece. There are women-led companies. So you're taking a broad view of business as opposed to just the early stage startup. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. And that, as I said, is, is what we felt we was needed in order to really see that, to achieve that ambition and that, that vision that we have. So, I mean, you mentioned Absolutely. There's three of our objectives are focused around entrepreneurship, the, the women becoming entrepreneurs, starting businesses, growing businesses internationally. Um, uh, but, but also for the first time ever, we included a focus on increasing the number of women in leadership positions in Irish companies. And I suppose I've kind of alluded to it uh, in, in what I was saying previously, but I mean, there's two critical reasons we've included this. Firstly, it's because we are, as a government agency, we are there to support Irish businesses to be the best that they can be. And, and we believe, and there is significant international research backing this up, 
that having more diversity in decision-making leads to higher performance and more profitability and more productive businesses. But the second piece, which is really, uh, really important, is that we know people who have senior management experience are more likely to see an opportunity for an innovative new enterprise. They're more likely to have confidence and the capability to do something about the opportunity and they're more likely to have that all-important network of connections to support them realizing the opportunity, including having better access to finance. So this objective we see as critical to securing a stronger pipeline of future entrepreneurs. So it's a very, you know, there's a very long-term view going on here. By getting more women into senior management and in decision-making roles, we'll end up with better businesses, but we'll also end up with more women likely to look at starting a business. And also, I presume another uh, spin-out from that is you mentioned positive role models, um, and presumably from that as well, you start then to develop, uh, I can I can look in, or uh, somebody can look in and see, well, they've done it, now I can do it too. Absolutely. I mean, that, that, that is critical. And I mean, you know, that is something that we've been working on, again, for a number of years, and, and particularly recently under our new strategy, in terms of profiling, promoting, and showcasing women business leaders. So in all Enterprise Ireland campaigns, we would always look at, at uh, making sure that we are profiling and highlighting women business leaders because that role model thing is so important. And again, it's, it's, it's breaking the, the, the traditional view, maybe particularly in certain sectors, which is nobody's fault. It's just the way it is. That's, that's, you know, it's the same in most developed countries. Absolutely. Uh, and as you say, this is a long-term game. Um, can I ask you finally about funding? And I read a statistic somewhere uh, as I was looking at this over the last few days that less than 10% of VC funding is going to companies uh, with female or women uh, founders. Um you mentioned HPSU and you've put a, a very strong focus at the early stage in HPSU. I guess there is a, there is a, a broader picture here around funding that needs to be developed specifically or focused on women entrepreneurs? Yeah, I mean, look, that the, when we look at the external funding um, environment, you, you know, you're right. There is, a, you know, it is a very tech island, I think, released that stat of less than 10% of funding going to female founders. Um, it, then when you kind of look at who's making those decisions, who's making those funding decisions, um, you know, and, and where funding is coming from. If you look at angel investors, HBAN um, have, have been taking steps to try and improve this, but you're looking at only, you know, 10 to 12% of angel investors are women and so forth. So the ecosystem, you know, again, there isn't sufficient uh, gender balance within the ecosystem, within the, the VC community and so forth, which may Ten, which can, we believe, ha- have an influence, then a further influence, encouraging more women to, to apply or indeed more women to become investors. Um, specifically, the types of things that we are doing within Enterprise Ireland, for example, on this specific area. First of all, obviously, we ourselves have in place women-specific funding calls. And in fact, uh, there is a call open at the mo- moment, the Competitive Start Fund for Women and that calls closing at, uh, on, on the 28th of September. Um, but in addition to what we can deliver ourselves, one of the key things about our strategy is we need to influence um, and, and collaborate with others. So, so one, as a strong signal of intent for the VC and C community and, and as a mechanism to track progress, we now require gender disaggregated information from fund managers on deal flight pipeline and deals done, including the founders, CEOs, C-suite, and so on of, of their portfolio. We also, in our calls for expression of interest from VC funding organizations, a, a recent call went out there. We specifically asked them to outline how they will actively go about seeking female-led businesses. And finally, we also looked for gender information on the composition of the fund management teams, the investment committees, and the boards. So that's just one example of how we are trying to both directly, as in terms of targeting women entrepreneurs with funding, but also to influence the change in the wider environment. Fantastic. Sheila, um, it's been great having you on this morning. It sounds like you have a very busy agenda ahead. Um, 
thank you for joining us. Uh, it was great to chat. Uh, and maybe we might ask you to come back at a later stage in our series and we'd love to explore progress. Uh, and as we develop that, we might ask you to do that. So um, once again, uh, thank you, Sheila, uh, for joining us. That was Sheila Daly, who's the Entrepreneurship Manager at Enterprise Ireland. Thanks a million. Bye now. So moving on, each week we bring you an innovator who has spotted a gap in the market, is developing a new and innovative way to address that gap. And now they're going to tell us the why and the how. I'm delighted to be joined this week by Deirdre Lyons, who's the founder and CEO of Examfly. Dee, welcome and thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks very much for having me, Connor. Great to be great here. To, uh, great to have you with us. Tell us about you first. Um, give us a little bit of background on you so we can get to know you first. Yep, born and raised in Limerick, uh, studied law in college um, before going on to train in tax in PwC, worked in wealth management after that. So I had a pretty long kind of corporate career going down the, I suppose, kind of fairly traditional career ladder. Um, Throughout all this, I've always had an interest in entrepreneurship and technology and looking at things and seeing where they could be made better. So, for example, even if I had a bar or waitressing job, it wasn't unknown for me to be um, supplying the managers with a list of things that could be improved or things that could be done differently. Um, Through my time lecturing in tax and um, moderating exams, giving grinds and stuff, I started to notice, um, I suppose what I felt were some issues with modern models of education and learning, particularly for difficult subjects. And um, Examply became, I suppose, the way that I felt that could be addressed. Lovely, lovely. I love that piece that you just said there about curiosity and actually as you're working your way through your career in in tax and you're looking around you're offering advice and stuff I always think in entrepreneurship that curiosity is one of the key ones. Oh I think big time um, intellectual curiosity really just looking at new ideas or things that are working well in one context and thinking about how they could be applied in a dis- in a different context um, and technology offers a lot of opportunities in that regard Um so again, seeing people struggling with professional exams, so in subjects like tax and accounting, I very much noticed that there wasn't a correlation necessarily between the amount of work people put in and the results that they got. So looking at things like, for example, adaptive learning, um, like gamification and social media, other types of technologies, I really felt that there were ways that those could be applied to this domain that had typically been maybe a bit traditional or a bit sleepy in a sense. And what was the what was the issue you observed? Why were people not doing well at their exams? I think there are two key things um, and they very much informed the product that we went on to build. The first is the problem of diminishing attention spans in an age of constant distractions. So if you're getting dopamine hit after dopamine hit off your phone or social media or whatever your particular particular poison is, it is a bigger ask than it used to be to sit down and consume dense technical material in subjects like tax and accounting. And I think most learning models, um, traditional ones, almost deny that reality or kind of hope for the best of it. Well, we very much recognise it and work around it. The second insight is the difference between learning just to kind of spit it back out again, like you might have done for your leaving certs, and skill acquisition, where you're taking on the knowledge to apply it in context. And where you're talking about skill acquisition, useful practice has to be at the heart of your study journey. I think that's under-recognised in traditional learning models, but that's very much baked into what we created in Examfly. That's a lovely one. Uh, the the notion of our attention spans, because anecdotally, we we kind of hear that over the last 20 years, as social media has become prevalent and our phones have become so much a part of our life, that attention spans are, are so much decreased. Have you observed that? Um, definitely. I've observed it in myself from chatting to my friends. But um, as the idea, for example, I began to formulate, I also did a bit of digging into education psychology, um, looked at some of the studies about what the internet has done to our brains. And the main kind of takeaway from that is that the tools that we use as human beings aren't just neutral facilitators of what we want to do. They can actually rewire our brains and change our capabilities. And that has happened in relation to our attention spans. It's not, I guess, just anecdotally. It's been kind of backed up by the studies. And I felt that with the traditional learning model um, in these subjects, it was almost like 
that was kind of ignored or under recognised and um, the the same ask continued to be sit down in front of dense technical textbooks or listen to maybe unengaging talking head PowerPoint type things. Um, so we just said this is a problem and we will try to work around it in our solution. Very good. But still, it's a brave move, Dee, to kind of say that I'm working for one of the big four. My life is mapped out. I'll be a partner in 20 years time. Blah, blah, and then suddenly say, actually, enough of that. I'm going to go and build a business. What was the trigger point that you said, this is it. I'm, I'm going to go and do it. Yeah, I suppose at the time I um, went into the startup world, I was working in wealth management. But yeah, similar dynamic that you can see the path um, mapped out ahead of you. Um, I suppose a couple of things like I felt that it was almost like a compulsion to do something different, to be, um, to try and bring an idea to life in practice. Um, that That's one of the things I find most motivating and to try and make something a bit better. Um, I also believe that you regret more the things that you don't do versus the things that you did. Like that world, you know, will be there to go back to, I guess, if things didn't work out. But um, just um, I think it might be Jeff Bezos or something talks about a regret minimization framework that you should maybe make decisions from a point of view of um, when you're 90 years old, maybe in a nursing home that... You don't regret anything. Um, and I think it is important like, to try and cap the downside risk if you can. You know, you don't want to leave yourself with, you know, crushing financial worries or a lot of instability. So that's maybe something I could have, um, you know, given a bit more attention to before I left. Quite impuls- jumping. Yeah, impulsively. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just kind of then observing the ecosystem out there, there's lots of supports and, you know, I think Dublin Bic Enterprise Iron, at an early stage, it's kind of taken from the point of view that you've got a, a potentially good idea and you can just kick the wheels on it and see if it works out. You know, it, it's not positioned as this kind of make or break thing. So I didn't really look at it like that. I would just, I just kind of thought, we'll see how we go with this idea. I'll try to bring it to life. If it doesn't work, I'll have learned a lot. And if it does, I'll keep going with it. Brilliant. Um, so then your experience, you've jumped out of the wealth management company and you're sitting at home and you have a sheet of paper in front of you. How did you take that and start to develop it into a business idea? I think um, I came at it from two different angles. Like the first was like looking at the science in terms of diminishing attention spans, in terms of what actually works for scale acquisition. Um, and then I suppose the core insights of the product flowed out of that. And then I suppose the next step was to translate that into what that would actually look like from a user perspective. And luckily, I'd had a lot of experience in lecturing and being a student myself in giving grinds. Um, so that was actually not too hard to formulate into um, a two-step learning model. Um, now, you're always working off assumptions. You know, you try and build an MVP and test it and see if it's right. And you have to be open to the possibility that you've gotten some of your assumptions wrong and you might have to change it. But um, in the end, what we came up with is a two-step learning framework. So we do the information intake phase by way of animated explainer videos. So these are a fun, engaging way to get to grips with the key concepts of the difficult topics. And then interactive testing tools. So that's that useful practice point, the skill acquisition point to build the muscles that you need um, when you're acquiring these skills and that you need in the exams. Um, And technology presented lots of opportunities to do this in a fun, almost like video game style way where you could present the information in novel ways and get people to test themselves. And that, just, that notion, sorry, that notion of the useful practice is a really interesting comment because it differentiates, differentiate, I suppose, from the learning by rote, which historically has happened. Big time. And that's absolutely key to what we do. And technology, I suppose, provides the opportunity to create interactive experiences where you're giving people repetitions. If you like, I always use the the gym analogy. It's almost like lifting weights. Repetitions are what builds the muscle that you need. So it's not the amount of hours spent in the gym. It's the amount of repetitions that you do. And because when you're using software, I suppose there are synergies you can achieve to give people more repetitions of testing themselves, getting things wrong, learning from their mistakes on these complicated subjects. So they build the muscles that they need in practice and the exam. And the knowledge goes into their brains, I suppose, the neural pathways in a more durable and sticky way. Fantastic. So you thought deeply about the science of learning before you ever started anything. So you were trying, I suppose, to develop an understanding of that scientific approach 
while also at the same time understanding the market and who was going to actually buy this from you. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose when, you know, when you're starting with an idea, you have to be conscious that you can't base everything off your own kind of intuition or anecdotal evidence. So that was a key part of coming up and refining the product idea in Examfly that I would make sure it was backed up by what the science says about attention spans, about how we learn, about skill acquisition, about things like spaced repetition techniques for learning. Um, and then the the other side of it is that's all fine, but you want to create something that's fun and engaging to you. So that's another almost completely yeah. different um, task that you have. Um, yeah, because you're trying to sell a product and it has to be, as you say, fun and engaging or otherwise it's just more of the same, I guess. Yeah. So you're, you're probably building in gamifying or trying to gamify some of that learning experience. Yeah, exactly. Like, I suppose it's no point having something that reflects the science if it's not something that students want to use and are enthusiastic about and excited by. Um, so you almost have to kind of blinker yourself to do that stage one thing of looking at science and seeing how it would be reflected in your product. And then stage two is how do you create something that will engage and that will get the use and people will do the repetitions and get the benefits from it. And I think testing has been a big part of that. So we'd have a very good relationship with the Masters of Accounting and Smurfit. So their students have tested from an early stage or MVP or versions one and two of the product and have been able to feed back to us like what they think about it, would they use it in practice, what they like, what they want to see more of, what they want to see less of. So that's been a great discipline for us that we're not building just the thing that we would like to see in the yeah. world, that it's um, been validated by, you know, reference users and our customers now um, that we've got them on board. There's some lovely lessons in there for our, our startup listeners, this, this notion of doing incredibly detailed research to make sure it's right getting it tested as you build towards your MVP and you mentioned using Smurfit but using somebody to test what it is that you're building such that you're building and it won't be right the first time but but to continue with that talk to me then because it takes money to build a company D so talk to me about your early funding journey um, yeah my journey was almost um, yeah very much a maybe typical Enterprise Ireland led path. So I started off in New Frontiers phase two. So that's the six month program where you get money and supports um, to try and test out the idea really and see if it has legs. I think the concept behind it is if at the end of the six months you've found out that maybe you're flogging a dead horse, well, great. <laughs> at least you've learned that in a fairly low risk way. Um, by the end of the six months, I definitely didn't feel like that. Um, I suppose on the contrary, you felt we were really on to something. Um, so the next chunk of funding we got was Competitive Start Fund, um, another enterprise iron, this time an equity support where it's 50,000 for 10% of the company. And luckily there were supports that went along with that, the Innovate program that... Um, we were on, we yeah, met there. Exactly. Yeah. And a whole bunch of other amazing female founders. Um, so having the 50,000, um, I suppose, allowed us to build our first market-ready product and we launched our first customer in uh, April 2020, which was a large educational body. It wasn't um, a whole suite of products. It was one very specific thing, but it had enough functionality that we felt we'd be able to get a really good um, insight into how beneficial the customers found it, what pain points it was solving and so on. Um, based on the feedback from that, and I suppose the momentum we had at that point and our plans had um, maybe become a bit more fully formed, um, we raised our seed round at the end of last year and that was HPSU co-funded. Right. Um, so yeah, we're still working through that. We've expanded our customer base at the moment. or we've uh, In the meantime, we've expanded our team. Um, so yeah, just kind of working through to reach the milestones that we basically told our investors that we would reach when we raised our seed round. Very good. Um, as I think about your funding journey, and I mentioned in my intro, I was examining women entrepreneurship and funding. And I'd like to get your particular view on the challenges of A, raising funds as an entrepreneur, because we're all entrepreneurs. But then were there specific challenges that you felt as a, a, a woman uh, that maybe a, a guy didn't have? Yeah, to speak to the general challenges first, um, in a startup, by definition, you're trying to solve a new problem or to bring something into existence that 
doesn't exist already. So as a consequence, there's a lot of chicken and eggs there. Like um, investors maybe want to see traction before they'll commit, but it's hard to get traction without money. It's hard yeah. to build a product without money. So in the early stage, I think a challenge that everyone faces is that you're almost trying to magic something into existence. You have to do a lot of things that don't scale. In my case, that looked like just putting in a lot of the hard yards myself to create the first version of the product, calling in favours from anyone who's like um, from different people in my world. Um, yeah, to get enough, um, tra- I suppose, get enough traction or initial validation to convince investors that there is something um, of merit here, something worth exploring further. Um, to speak to the point about female entrepreneurs specifically, um, I'm not sure how generalizable this is, but for me personally, I think, um, you know, there is some kind of confidence and conditioning that I had to overcome in myself. Um, conditioning maybe more so around money discussions. I think people in general can be very squeamish about having those discussions and it sometimes seem as maybe a little bit impolite and things. Is it, is it an Irish thing rather than anything else? I wonder, <laughs> is it just we're reluctant to get into that? I think it could be an Irish thing. Yeah. Um, anecdotally, maybe I see it a little bit more among my female friends than male friends, but you have to get comfortable with the numbers and get comfortable having discussions and even sometimes hired negotiations where the kind of conditioning that we receive to be just the nice girl and not ever kind of push back on anything. It's not very helpful in those scenarios because you're trying to negotiate things like valuations, which could have very long term yeah. effects for your company. Um, so whether it's a female thing or a more general Irish thing, I think getting comfortable in numbers, getting comfortable with hard discussions where people are saying no to you and you have to feel kind of comfortable to kind of try and push back. Um, and not take things personally. I think those are things that will stand to you in a fundraising journey. Yeah, but I just wonder, are they so trying to understand the issue? I think there are probably more non-specific issues in that, you know, none of us likes to be rejected. None of us likes to be told no repeatedly. You know, and in the sales world, you learn to live with that rejection. Um, so I kind of think, and from working across entrepreneurs of, uh, you know, in Dublin Bic over the last number of years, I think that's a kind of a general one. I suppose my question, though, is digging into it. As a female, did you observe anything along the way where you say, well, they wouldn't treat a guy like that, uh, I suppose is what I'm trying to get to. And whether that's implicit or explicit, I, I'm wondering about bias, I suppose. Yeah, the thing about bias, in my opinion, is that, you know, an ambiguous situation could be interpreted in lots of different ways. And if someone has bias as their motivation, that's something that's in their head and that you necessarily don't, you don't necessarily have proof about yes. So, like, I think in my, that's just my own kind of operating principle, as a founder, you have to be as optimistic about yourself and about the world and your chances in it as possible. Like, it's crucial. It's like one of the main things that you have to have. So if there is an ambiguous situation which could be put down to sexism or it could be put down to maybe somebody just isn't ready to invest or they don't really see the benefit of the product or something, I would probably choose the more empowering for me interpretation, which is, okay, what can I learn from this and what can I change rather than necessarily immediately thinking it was down to some bias because you can never know, I suppose, what's going on in someone's head. Um, So as a personal operating system, I found that quite useful because it keeps me optimistic and not dejected about my chances as a female. I think it's like kind of been borne out. It's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. I would, I suppose, differentiate on a system-wide level. Like, there definitely are challenges that female entrepreneurs face and that should be spoken about more and that, you know, if there is something that is definitely sexism or definitely bias, it should be called out. But um, for more kind of hard-to-tell situations, I would probably choose the more empowering interpretation, whether that's right or wrong. No, it's it's a lovely one because you're differentiating between systemic, uh, and we heard from Sheila, uh, so there there is that piece. But you, what you're saying is that for all of us, we need to empower ourselves, we need to remain positive and, and try to kind of pick, you know, I presume as you went through the HPSU funding, you pitched to huge amounts of people. You had a, a kind of an Excel sheet or a CRM where you had lots of people you were pitching to, learning from each as you went along, I guess. 
hundred percent. Like the pitch that you do on day one might be four or five out of ten. By the time you get to day thirty or forty, it'll be close to an eight or a nine. Yeah. Um, I suppose once you go in with the attitude that this is a learning um, experience, that it's not a any pushback that they have, they're showing, I suppose, signs of their insight and intelligence as investors. It's not a personal affront to you and shouldn't be kind of taken as such. So I suppose in my earlier pitches, I maybe, you know, you have, there was a little bit more defensiveness there on yes. my part when getting asked hard questions. But that's not useful going forward. You have to take the information that um, you've been given. And it's not to say you don't take it with a pinch of salt or you don't filter it through your own judgment. But um it just helps hone and sharpen your pitch and it helps you bring the real um, effective talking points to the forefront that you might not have appreciated before because as a founder, you can be very close and very protective of your product and the investor is obviously looking more at things like the business model and the future plan and operations and things like that. So it, like, I think treating fundraising as a really good learning experience, trying to depersonalise the feedback as much as possible, um, yeah, is a helpful way to get better as you go along. And I suppose yeah, because, it, because in many respects, it's not personal. Uh, it is you're pitching an idea to somebody, you want their money, they want to convince themselves that you'll treat the money wisely, you'll respect it and you'll grow it and return it. And, you know, they're arguably that's not personal. That's just business, as the old saying goes. And and your point about taking a learning from every one of those, I think, is just so nice that you meet somebody, they give you some feedback, you take that feedback, you decide what to keep, what to discard, and then you move on to the next pitch, which is kind of lovely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you'll be a different person and a different company at the end of a fundraising round than you were at the start. Um, yeah, yeah. So... Talk to me then about the vision for the future. So you're growing. Ashling is here with us today as well. So uh, and then there were two. Um, what does what does the next couple of years hold for you? Yeah, at the moment we have our first few customers. So we're in some of the major professional services firms in Ireland um, with a version of our product that has received great feedback um, that users seem to really like. Um, I see that very much as a starting point. Um, an underlying belief um, that I have is that education technology is very much in its infancy versus where it will go. Early ed tech companies focused on things like learning management system platforms, like maybe curating courses um, and putting them online. So focusing on the manner of delivery um, and the, the, the availability of courses. I think the technology that's employed in ed tech is really going to deepen and focus more about what's happening cognitively in the minds of the students. And we want to be at the forefront of that. So the technology that we've employed at the moment, the learning techniques are, I suppose I see that as the start of where we're going to go over the years. Um, so recruiting our first uh, chief technology officer is big on our agenda for next year. Um, today, the the guys that we have are great, but um, we're bringing in... You'd outsource that and now you're going to bring it in-house, I guess. Absolutely, yeah. And I suppose, yeah, just thinking a bit more ambitiously about the technical vision about expanding our range of subjects, about looking at different markets. Um, now that we feel that we're close to or have achieved product market fit, scalability is obviously a big concern, looking at how we systemize what we've done well, make it into processes, make it repeatable, both in terms of product production and sales. So they're the things that once we have our um, autumn launches out of the way that we'll be starting to think about and plan for. Fantastic. Um, you've been on a kind of a journey over the last three years. And for our listeners, what's the one piece of advice you'd give to someone who's starting a business and they're listening to you, being inspired by you? What's the one piece of this is this is what you must look out for as you go on the journey. Um, maybe going back to that point about optimism, um, I saw this quote yesterday, so I'm going to kind of steal it for this advice. But it's um, you have always more options than you think about, and things are never as bad as they seem. So that kind of links to Paul Graham of Y Combinator. Combinator's definition of a good founder, and that's a characteristic of relentless resourcefulness. So in other words, challenges, problems, no's, 
headaches are all stuff that are an, an inevitable part of building a business. They're going to come one way or the other. Um, but if you can kind of set your philosophy and your attitude so that you're able to deal with them in a way that doesn't throw you off balance, that you can f- like find solutions to problems that you know that things are never going to be or rarely going to be fatal, um, that you can find a way around anything. I think that just maybe leaves you if you can kind of have that attitude up front rather than kind of learning it at the end of three years, as maybe I did, um, it just maybe leaves you more resilient to the, the problems and the challenges that are inevitable to any hard thing that anyone tries to yeah. do, you know. There's there's challenges coming and, and expect them, prepare for them, but they too will pass. Dee, it's been absolutely fabulous having you here with us this morning and thank you for coming in to talk to us. That was Deirdre Lyons, who's the CEO of Examfly. So our final guest for today is an entrepreneur and businesswoman who over the last 10 years has built one of the leading design agencies in the country, has worked with some iconic brands such as Kerry, Tourism Ireland, Bewley's, as well as tech brands such as OpenNet. I'm delighted to be joined by Celine D, who's the founder, co-founder of Richards D. Good afternoon, Celine. Oh, good afternoon, Connor, and thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for joining us. Um... I want to talk to you about you. I want to hear all about the business. Um, but I also want to use the time that we have to talk about your understanding or your ideas around branding, particularly for the startup. Uh, because as you know, we're, we're a show all about startups and scale-ups and, and this mm-hmm. idea of positioning and branding. Uh, so I want to get there as well. But maybe to start us off tell us a little bit about you and your background i met you first it must be 15 years ago when we were we were doing some stuff in meteor together um uh, yep. tell us tell us about your background how did you find your way into the design world sure so um i'll i'll start with uh with my origin so i'm originally from kerry and i'm uh living in uh, in dublin now um how did i find my way into this world so uh, i i guess if i look at where um, I started from a university perspective. I started, you know, in UCC with a degree in English and French. And then I moved um, to Dublin to do a master's in business-to-business marketing. It was something that really interested um, me at the time was, you know, looking at how B2B brands um, act and sort of perform as distinct from B2C brands. And then from there, my career really has been in creative agencies, working side-by-side with uh, local and, and global brands, and obviously myself and yourself cross paths, and we were only mere children 15, um, <laughs> 15 years ago. So in 2012, then I, I set up a brand strategy and creative agency called Richards D with my co founder, Simon Richards. Um, and then uh, as an aside or in addition to that, I also set up last year. Um, uh, not-for-profit called Creatives for Good, uh, and we ran our first major campaign um, out of that. So there, there's, there are two parts to, to the business, I guess. There's the brand strategy and creative agency, and, and then the not-for-profit, which is also uh, running. And then last but not least, I'm, I'm a mom to two kids, Jonah and Jade, and a wife to Connor, and um, and you'll often see me pounding pavement with our dog, Indy. So that's a... <laughs> a busy, a busy, busy life, Celine. Um <laughs> Tell me this. So you could have developed a very strong career for yourself in the kind of corporate world, moving from brand agency to brand agency. You would be running one of the international agencies now. I've no doubt about that. What prompted you to move and say, I'm going to set up on my own? Yeah, so, so that's, a, that's a, an interesting question. So Simon and I co-founded the agency and started it in uh, 2012. Um, the catalyst for me, I had just had my first son and during maternity leave, I took time to reflect on what the next step in my career would look like. Um, I was at a time, you know, we, we had obviously crossed paths and I was at a time where I had worked for other people and other principals for several years and I was ready to work for myself. Um, looking back now, you know, it, it was really the freedom that I thought working for myself would afford, and uh, and I now see how unbelievably naive I was. <laughs> yeah, but 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 you know, it's one thing to say I decided it was time to move. But was it around the freedom? Was it thinking, well, if I set up my own business, I'll set my own hours, and there'll be very little pressure, and life will be great? Is that the naivety piece that you're talking about? 
No, I, I think I, I I always knew it was going to be hard work. I've uh, never been shy of, of hard work. I'm my father's daughter, I suppose. Um, it, it was more kind of, I, I suppose, at the time I had thought I would have more freedom running my own business than uh, than actually working for somebody else. So that that was a real catalyst um, for me at, at the point I, I was at then. Um, yeah, it's interesting and, and so because we, we talk to tech entrepreneurs and they say, oh, I had this problem that I needed to solve and I observed it and therefore I went and, you know, I built something to solve that problem. You're mm-hmm. saying actually there was a different motivation, which is kind of interesting, that it was for you, it was a personal motivation as opposed to observing something in the market that said, I alone can fix this. Yeah, I, I think it was a combination of uh, it was a combination of both. Like what really prompted me to start my own business, I, I guess, was you know knowing the type of life or lifestyle I wanted to build for myself. Um, but equally, my co-founder and I, uh, Simon, had worked together for a number of different um, brand agencies over the years and you know we had separated you know we were working for different businesses around 2011 but i think working you know with different global brands and local brands we began to recognize what we call the power of brand and its ability to create real meaningful change for businesses and um and when i say brand i'm not talking about a logo or messaging or just the communications like you know brand is everything that your business stands for and, and believes in and it's how your business makes a positive contribution to people to investors to customers and it's all about why that matters so so at the time um you know simon and i believed that brand was a powerful catalyst and that it was somewhat undervalued or misunderstood, particularly in this market. And I am talking about 10 years ago. So uh, that was the unmet need that we founded the agency on. So I guess there was, there was two catalysts for me, really. Yes, we had identified this unmet need, but I was really prompted by the stage of life that I was um, that I was at at that time. And, and that was the impetus then for starting Richard's D, a brand strategy and creative agency, and we built our entire proposition on what we call uh, designing meaningful change for brands, businesses, and, and for the world in which we live. It's lovely. And of course, Simon, who I also uh, met many years ago when we, we were all both kids. Uh, so yeah, so I know mm-hmm. Simon as well. So uh, there's a lovely piece in there, Celine, about finding a co-founder and that yin and yang piece. So what is it about you and Simon that kind of... Mm-hmm works well together um i guess there's strengths and weaknesses on either side yeah yeah there 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 are absolutely um i suppose first and foremost we had collaborated in a previous business and we were both working for somebody else so we had tried and tested our relationship and we always had a really good spark that's not to say we didn't and don't disagree um but we always found a way to get past our differences um, I think secondly, because we had worked together, uh, we realized that the best work we had ever done actually was together and not when we were apart. So, you know, in, in terms of the, the strategies that we developed or the creative solutions that we brought to market or um, or just the interactions and the relationships that we had built with clients. And then thirdly, it is that it is that yin and yang, you know, Simon is um, an amazing creative leader. He's creative director of the business. My background is focused more on the commercial side, looking at how business strategy can be reflected into brand strategy. You know, I do a lot of the new business development um, activity for the business. So so we have that in terms of our core area of expertise. They're so complementary, um, but they're equally quite differentiated. And then, you know, we've worked together now for 10 years and, you know, it does take time. I know other businesses who's, who had co-founders and, you know, they, they may not have uh, gotten on as, as well as, as we have. We've just, we, we found our groove over the years. You know, I, I know when to leave Malone. Um, <laughs> yeah, but like, and, you know, uh, yeah, in any good relationship, there's that kind of uh, when do you push, when do you stop, when do you put forward and all of that and that kind of interplay. But, but you know, as we think about starting businesses and, um, you know, to start a business by yourself as a sole founder is very difficult. And, and having that other person with you on that journey is hugely important. It's hugely important. And I think particularly where the skills are 
um, different, but but highly complementary. Um, yeah, so so I think for us it was absolutely uh, it was absolutely the right uh, the right thing and the right decision to make at the time. Super. So, describe for me, if you will, the ten years um, from from the two of you sitting down with a sheet of paper hmm. designing this to where you are today, one of the leading agencies. I guess mm-hmm. you've hired you've hired uh, a bunch of people. Um, yep. you're you're a very significant established business. What's what was that journey like to get to get from there to here? Yeah, so you know, it it wasn't without its highs <laughs> and and its lows. It's typical yeah. of uh, of any journey. Um, so we started the business when Ireland was I suppose officially coming out of the recession in 2012. Um, it was for us a, a great time um, to start the business because there was a general anticipation and excitement for the next phase of, of what Ireland uh, was moving into and, and what was ahead for brands. Um, we started in a, a really small shared studio uh, space on Fitzwilliam Street in Dublin. Um, we funded the business ourselves. Uh, there's very little businesses like ours that receive external funding. So, you know, and, and we took a lot of the, the pain, you know, that, that goes along uh, with that. And we set ourselves up really small, um, a tight team. And then we went to meet people, Connor, and we chatted to people about our experience, about the way we worked uh, about what or services that combined brand strategy and creativity uh, could do for them and their businesses in terms of, um, you know, the acquisition of more customers or, you know, becoming more relevant to existing customers or building greater loyalty. And so we started that process of pitching for uh, and losing, um, but also winning projects. And really that started then, um, a cycle of work that has continued, a busy cycle of work, I would say, that has continued for the past 10 years. But um, there's probably a piece, so you said winning and losing, but also learning, I guess, uh, you yep. know, from, from the two of you where you had been doing it for bigger agencies and you are now doing it for yourself. Yep. As you were going through these pitches, you were learning what worked and what didn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Simon and I often speak about this at the start we weren't fussy, you know, if we were asked to the table, irrespective of whether we believed it was our sweet spot, we went to that table because even if we didn't win, it was around building connections. And even if we weren't right for that particular opportunity, we may have been right for a future opportunity with that business or, or with that brand. Um, I think over the years, you know, there there were some uh, big, big programs that we pitched for and uh, and we didn't win. And I look back now and I see that we weren't prepared. You know, we weren't prepared to not just to win it, but to deliver on, on the work. Um, but then, you know, I, I used to say for many, many years and people would say to me, oh, you've you've done quite well and you've been so successful. And I used to say, God, we've, we've just been really lucky. And, and it's not about luck, really. It, it is about where preparation meets opportunity. And I feel over the years, every experience that we've had and every high and every low, we've taken time after that experience to consolidate as a team and to reflect on the process and to understand how we could have improved or what we could have done better. And that led us into better opportunities that were right for us and better for us as a team. So a refining, and a refine, yeah, a refining of the pipeline and saying, well, actually, these are the opportunities and the areas that we're really, really good at. Let's focus on those. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you one other thing uh, is around timing, I guess, because one of the one of the key drivers of success for startups is timing. And I just wonder you mentioned starting as Ireland was coming out of recession, people were badly scarred by the previous four years since 2008 and they were now starting to think about the future. And was there a piece of you just being in the right place at the right time to start to capitalise on some of that growth? Yeah, there absolutely was. You know, we were starting from a really fresh and clean sheet of paper and a lot of our peers in the market had undergone um, changes or restructures or were downsizing, uh, whereas we were starting with, you know, fresh sheet of paper, fresh thinking, and we were uh, quite positive about the opportunities that existed, about 
you know, how brands and, and businesses, you know, could really refine their positionings to capitalize on what the opportunities were going to bring as Ireland moved um, out of that phase. Um, it's also, I suppose, worth noting we're, we're at a time now where every business is um, struggling, you know, maybe to acquire the right level of talent and the right expertise for the right cost and the right budget. And we didn't have that same challenge, you know, back in 2012. We were being approached by not just a lot of candidates, but a lot of really quality candidates that we had worked with in the past who wanted to who wanted to work with us. Um, so that the sensitivities that existed then, you know, around um, the, that battle for talent, that wasn't in place. So, so we built a really strong team and quickly built a strong core team and have managed then to evolve that over time. So, so timing was, was really important for us on that, not just in terms of, you know, the, the sort of the, the fresher thinking a newer agency could bring to brands. We weren't scarred by, yes, yes. you know, any experiences. We didn't have to deal with people who might have been a little bit um, demotivated that were on the team. And it was a, it was a great time, you know, to, to really hire brilliant talent you know, really brilliant talent. And, and then combined with that, you had the outlook of brands and the perspective of brands that was changing and that was more opportunistic and more focused on the possibilities. So as opposed to going to ground, it was really, okay, you know, well, what what do we now need to do to be able to attract and acquire new customers, you know? It's time to, re- it's time to, to rebuild and, uh, it's, yeah. It's time to rebuild. And that's a, that's a great moment in um for societies and it's a great moment for for brands and for businesses and and indeed it was a it was a really great moment for us can i ask you celine we uh are talking here today on this episode about women entrepreneurship and the particular challenges that women face um we heard from sheila daly earlier on with enterprise ireland what is your opinion or your experience as regards challenges that you as a, a, a woman in business have faced? Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose, you know, I, I look at this from a lot of different perspectives. Um, but, you know, we all know that on paper things have never looked better for female entrepreneurs. And, you know, I was reading some content recently from the National Association of Women Business Owners in the United States and more businesses are owned by women than ever before and they're generating more sales than ever before and they're hiring more people than that ever piece before. Of research, yeah. yeah, but the but women owned businesses as, as we both know acutely are still in the minority. Um and the hurdles faced by women, you know, yes they can be uh they can be different to those that are that are faced by men. Um and I can focus, I suppose more subjectively on this point as opposed to objectively because I've absolutely faced different challenges at different stages as I've run um, the business and you know over the years I've worked hard to find solutions that work for me and help me to deal with those uh, those challenges so you know one of um, one of the the core challenges that you know I have had and you know they say it's something that's maybe affects female founders and, and leaders more is uh, something called imposter syndrome. Maybe it's been touched off. Of, no, um, we haven't actually. Already. Do, 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 do tell. Yeah. So I suppose that for, for people, you know, for those that don't recognize it by name, it's, it's often referred to as like a psychological pattern where people doubt like their skills or their talents or their accomplishments. And, you know, it, it sometimes, you know, would heighten for me before, you know, a really big pitch scenario, like if, you know, there were two or three um, agencies, global agencies, and we were a local agency, and we were at the table and at the room, you know, or if I was asked to speak, you know, at an event. Um, so I guess with experience, and over the years, I, I've come to recognize the, the, the triggers. And, um, and I found that, you know, taking a moment to, to fight, it's what I call fighting fear with facts. Is just it's a really helpful technique for me because it kind of recenters you on the value that you as um, a leader uh, bring and, and all that you've achieved. And you know, I, I do think that in this world, when you are running your own business, that sometimes we we move so fast um, that we don't actually stop to recognize, you know, what we've accomplished and 
how everything that we've done really has prepared us for the moment that we're currently in. So I think that that's, you know, something that has been a challenge for me on and off over the years. But, you know, I, I, that's, I, I've found a solution that has helped me to be able, uh, to, be able to deal with it and, and to really recognize, I guess, not just the value that I bring as a leader, but, the, you know, the tangible results and the value that my team and I have brought to businesses and to brands uh, over the years. It's, so it's, it's amazing because having seen having seen you pitch very recently, um, and it was a, a wonderful pitch, well delivered, eloquent, and the Q and A and all of that. And I, I had the, the privilege of sitting in and watching it, and it's amazing to think that we all, and I, I guess this is you know whether as a male or a female, but we we kind of think, I'm, can I pull this off? Am I the person to do this? And actually, mm-hmm. then when we see you in action, it was it was superb. So the the mind is a funny thing, really, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. And, you know, I think when I was, you know, a little bit earlier in my career, that having those kinds of unhelpful thoughts or or feelings of anxiousness um, might have affected my confidence, you know, at scenarios like that. But, you know, I do find over the years that just taking a moment and taking a breath and, you know, really being able to um, kind of reinforce that you're you're prepared for the moment that you're in and, and everything that you've done, whether you're just a year in or four years in, has prepared you to be here at this moment and, and at this time and you're as deserving to be at the table yeah. or in and rem- front and of And remind yourself investor. of that. Yeah. And remind yourself of that as, yeah. as anybody else as anybody else that's there. So so that's one and I suppose the other one for me at, at this um, at this point in my career, and you know, I, I think this would be fair of, of lots of other founders as well, is maintaining a sense of balance. You know, just that sense of balance because it is, it is so critical. And you know, speaking from personal experience, last year was really, really challenging for so many different people, and you know, for founders and leaders of businesses who were working from home and who were running businesses remotely and keeping teams motivated and setting up the infrastructures to make sure that clients, you know, weren't um, affected by this completely different way of working, um, often with two parents working from home and trying to manage homeschooling. So what I have learned, you know, is that it's it's so critical to make time for the things that nourish you and, and that nourish you creatively. Um, and whether that is, you know, exercise or being in nature, reading or, or meditation or just just taking time out and carving time. And if that means putting time in your diary, that's your time, that, then do it. Because if you continue on the treadmill and the cycle, you know, you'll, you'll find, and I have found at different stages of, of my career, um, that you become less effective, you become a less effective leader, you become less effective at, at the work and the programs that you uh, you deliver. So, so taking time out to do the things that really inspire you, that nourish you, I, I think is critical. And, and equally, I suppose, a, a further one to that is, is building the right support systems around you. And that's both personal and, and professional, you know, having the right support of whether it's friends or a really tight network of mentors that you rely on for advice and guidance and can, you know, at different stages of your trajectory, help you see the wood from the trees, which is really important because as you, as you run fast, you know, as, as everybody does at the beginning, um, it becomes hard sometimes to see the wood from the trees. So, so a really tight network of, of mentors that you can seek advice and guidance from I found to be uh, really, really Fantastic. helpful. And a shameless plug, come and have a chat with us at Dublin Bic and we'll help you. Well, <laughs> well there you go, Connor. Thank you to be discreet there. <laughs> <laughs> if I could ask you finally, um, and going back to your power of brand, um, yes. we spend a lot of time with startups guiding and advising them on the future and building their business. And we tend to spend a lot of time around financials and value propositions and, and they're really important. But I'm reflecting on my conversations. We don't spend that much time talking about a brand. And, you know, a brand is more than you said at the outset than just a logo and a lick of paint. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. your advice to the startups thinking about the brand and the the pieces that make up the brand, what should they be thinking about? Mm, Yeah, so I I guess I'm going to start this by recognising 
that in the early days, founders have so many points of focus. And, you know, we're working with really tight teams and minimal resources. And, you know, we work a lot and have worked a lot with tech brands, whether they're starting or scaling up. And, you know, I see how branding and positioning can be left until subsequent rounds of funding uh, or of investment are, are received. So I think, you know, let's let's go back to the first point that you mentioned there. And, and the first thing is the distinction of what brand is and, and what it isn't. So it isn't just a logo. That's a brand identity. That's the badge. It's not just a piece of advertising. It is a reflection of who you are. It's a reflection of everything that you do. So I would believe that from the outset, brand should be prioritized up there with product and with people when defining the business strategy. And, you know, it, it's taking the time to define, you know, what, what's at the core of your brand and what does it stand for? You know, does it reflect the true vo- voice of the founders? Like, what is that founder vision? And, and what are those beliefs? Because those beliefs are guiding lights often for um, businesses as they start and scale. A big, big thing is what is the culture you want to create? So we look at what's called brand values. What do you as a founder and as a business value above everything else? And this, I can tell you, is so critical for the acquisition of talent. And if you look at the vast majority of tech companies, like look at Stripe or Spotify or Airbnb or, you know, even a lot of the smaller ones, but they all have really strong career pages. They all have like life at Stripe content so future employees and talent that they are ultimately looking to acquire get an insight into the brand and what it's like to work there so you know looking at how you message to audiences because and and ultimately I guess how you know how is this all wrapped up into a positioning and what what is a positioning a positioning is a single-minded idea that drives the business forward and it can be built on many different things it can be built on the product so if you look at somebody like um bmw and they you know they position the brand on the product it's the ultimate driving machine but we're seeing a much stronger move recently to um the positioning or the idea that drives the business being built more on the attitude or the belief of the business so if you look at the likes of um, Airbnb and their single-minded idea that they project everywhere is belong anywhere. Or if you look at Stripe, I mean, Stripe could lead out that, yes, we're a payments platform and these are the functional benefits, but they lead out with purposeful communications around their mission, which is increasing the GDP of the internet. And that's a really aspirational place to be. Or, or you can look at Tesla, you know, they make electric cars and renewable solutions, but they adopt a visionary positioning and they talk about our role in the world is to accelerate the world's transition to renewable energy. So, so I think that that center of gravity for the brand is really important and it can be centered on the product and the attributes of the product, or it can be centered on the belief system of the founders of the values that are unique and differentiated to you as a business. Um, yeah, and, and ultimately can be brought to life. So, um, super. Celine, we are, that's, that's really good. I mean, you know, getting that very clear positioning, the value system, the beliefs. So it's not just about, you know, we're raising a few bob because we want to kind of sell more, but actually what underpins it, I think is, is such a lovely piece that maybe often gets neglected in the investor pitch, in the discussions. We are, out of time, Celine. Um, thank you mm-hmm. so much for joining us today, uh, for sharing your story and indeed your thoughts on branding. Delighted. And we look forward to having you back with us maybe in the future. We'll have a further chat. Yeah, sounds good. And thank you so much for the opportunity. Take care. That's Celine D of Richards D. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed the discussion and we hope that the stories you hear today and across the series will inspire you. If you have a great idea, you're thinking of starting or scaling a business and would like some support, do get in touch with us at startup at dublinbic.ie. That's it for now from Startup Nation.